Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. I have a confession to make. And what's that, John? Does uh, the month of November 2019 have any particular significance to you? Oh, absolutely. And especially if you're in L.A. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's when and where Blade Runner happens. Yeah. At least and, the first one. And we, we had an episode back in, in November of, of 2019. Uh-huh. And uh, we talked a bit about Blade Runner, uh-huh. and it it is now well we're we're, we're well into the throes of October twenty twenty. Yeah, and um, I ju- I just fixed a, a typo. <laughs> yeah. so, in our show notes, I, I had misspelled Blade Runner. I, I apologize. That's embarrassing because that's something you can easily look up, John. And, and you know what the the sad thing is, I I had looked it up because one of those typos was was linking to the the film itself like actually linking out to a page that i had visited uh-huh. and copied the link from and put into our show notes and, and i still still got the name wrong so uh-huh. I, i'm sorry it is now corrected that is good that is good uh, nearly a year later <laughs> <laughs> and it's not like it was just one spot every every single spot in the show notes where i had written blade runner i had had written it as, as one word well at least you were consistent in your error yeah I, I, consistent in my error indeed i was so <laughs> I, I, I am sorry about that i, I know you're a, a big fan of, of blade runner and uh, clearly i have some learning to do perhaps as, as penance i should make you sit down and watch it with me again since <laughs> yeah, you you clearly don't uh, don't appreciate the genius of, of blade runner well, I, I do now own a physical copy. So, do you so really? I'll, okay. I'll on me. I think you only, you're only like four or five copies behind me now. <laughs> I've, I've owned that on pretty much every every medium I think it's been released on, including multiple copies, because, of course, there have been 30 different, you know, director's cuts and super director's cuts, and no, really, this is actually the final cut. And, oh, no, that wasn't actually really the final cut, but this one really is. And yeah, so there's been a couple of uh, edits of that film. So do you have a favorite cut? Uh, this is going to piss a lot of people off, but I, I actually do like the theatrical cut with the voiceover that Harrison Ford did, which you've probably never seen or heard. I have not. Uh, I know a lot of people dislike it. Um, I dislike some of the scenes that they cut out of it, and I, I like some of the scenes that have been added in later cuts. Um, but I'm actually a fan of the voiceover for a number of reasons. It helps with the film noir aspect of the the film. And I know that some people are, you know, a little annoyed because it's like, well, I don't need this explained to me. I know exactly what this is. But it helps It helps uh, with that sort of genre, uh, fitting it in there. And uh, so I, I don't actually mind the voiceover like many, many fans do. Uh, but at the same time, I also do like the, um, you know, the final cut that was released recently. So, well, recently been a while been five years i think since the final cut was released so yeah i don't actually mind uh the final cut i don't mind the theatrical cut at least from the uh the point of view of the things that annoy people about it and now there's a whole new take too with, with 2049 well 2049 i'm uh i like what denny villeneuve did with 2049 and i'm i know that they had planned a third one and in fact uh, villeneuve was supposed to direct a third one i just hope that the 2049 one made enough money that they were able to justify doing a third one. I don't know with the way that movies have not been making a lot of money this year, maybe that, uh, that will still be appealing even, even though it wasn't, uh, you know, sort of not guaranteed to make a billion dollars or whatever. Uh, hopefully some studio picks it up and, and does the, the third one because I, I'm a big fan of what uh, Denny Villeneuve did. Do you think Harrison Ford will be back for the third installment? Uh, I don't know. I, I was. I, I'm amazed that he's still he's still getting up and and acting at all, considering some of his accidents in the last couple of years, because he's mm. been involved in small plane accidents and things like that. So I, I'm a little shocked that the man is. I mean, and he's in his 80s. I'm, you know, at some point or another, the body is just not happy with crashing in a plane. So mm. I don't even know if I can handle that at half his age. So I, I'm. I, I don't know if we'll see him in a, a third one or not. Yeah, if, if I were Harrison Ford, I think I'd just grow tired of continually having to, to relive my youth. <laughs> it's just getting pulled back for so many films, like Indiana Jones, Star yeah, Wars. Yeah, exactly. Blade Runner. At least he was smart with Star Wars and told them that he wanted to get, be killed off quickly. Kill me off, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the smartest thing he did about Star Wars. 
But yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, it's and he, you know, he had a pretty significant role in twenty forty nine. It's not like he was just a, a little bit character that was that was showing up in there. So we'll see. And um, I mean, Ryan Gosling's obviously available, so he's uh, he did a good job in in twenty forty nine. I was mm-hmm. happy with what he did. Yeah. I, I apologize if we just spoiled the, the Star Wars sequels. No, not even sequels. Like the, the prequels. Uh, I don't know. Postquels. Postquels. All right. <laughs> we'll go with that. At this point, you know what? There's there's sort of a statute of limitations on spoilers, and uh, you know at this point, if if you haven't seen it by now, well, that's your own damn fault because it's been years since those were released. Fair enough, mind you. My 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 son has, has yet to see a single Star Wars. Well, that that is true. I mean, what's the what's the quote that every every day someone's born who hasn't seen the Flintstones, mm-hmm. and and so yeah, I, I'm you're right. Not everybody has seen them, and and uh, but I, I don't think your son is listening to Off Hours just yet. <laughs> We'll give him a couple of years before we uh, we we start forcing him to go back and listen to the back catalog. I, I will never force him to do that. Oh, well, that's okay. That's why I'm here. <laughs> and another neat bit of, of sci-fi that crossed my my radar recently was uh, a little video going inside Industrial Light and Magic and shedding a little light on uh, them doing a bit of a throwback to going back to using old school miniatures to to film the Razor Crest. Yeah, this was something that had come across my radar and I've just been so busy with other things the last week or so that it, I completely forgot to watch it. But uh, you, you forwarded it on to me and, and we uh, we sat down and watched it. And yeah, this is impressive, some of the work that they were doing on The Mandalorian. And I, I know that they've done some really progressive work on The Mandalorian with uh, some of the, the soundstage work they've mm-hmm. been doing and things like that, where they're, instead of doing a full green screen, they're actually projecting the environment onto a massive screen in the background. So it gives you a better sense of actually being there rather than just completely green screening it. Uh, this was all about how they decided to build a physical model of the Razor Crest, uh, the, the ship that the Mandalorian flies. And it's, it's interesting looking at how they've gone off and done it. I mean, first off, they, they're using a form three printer, mm-hmm. like the one that I've got sitting about 15 feet to our, my left. And using that to actually build the model. And then uh, they were using motion control. In fact, in some cases, the same motion control equipment that was being used 20 years ago, 30 years ago for for some of this work. And uh, they did it so that they could get the look and feel that the original trilogy had in terms of how how the ship was flying. And of course, a lot of that came from the limitations of the motion control equipment. You know, with CG, you can shoot it from any angle you can have the camera pan or you know tilt or twist or whatever in angle any angle you want but obviously with motion control you have physical limitations and uh, so they wanted to capture that look and feel and that's and that's why they decided to make a physical model of it and they still got some an impressive amount of control out of the the motion control units they, they ended up building it was disarmingly satisfying for me uh, so one of the gentlemen in the, this little movie is john Knoll. And uh, he has been at ILM for, for a long time, but he's actually the, the co-creator of Photoshop. And uh, it was just uh, really neat for me to see him as, having created this tool that has just unleashed an incredible amount of, of creative potential and, and has really just paved the way for, for digital visual mm-hmm. effects to even occur. And to see him in his own shop turning and throwing chips on a lathe yeah. to, to build out this, this motion control unit uh, in, in this like assuredly calm frenzy to, to meet a deadline uh, was just was fantastic. Well, and he, he admits in there that he actually wrote motion control software years ago mm-hmm. for, you know, for doing video work. And, uh, and so this was sort of a throwback to stuff that he did early in his career, which is kind of, uh, kind of impressive. So, yeah, it's uh, it was interesting to see that team, and obviously a lot of guys in there have been doing this for a very, very long time. I, I kind of get the impression that ILM is one of those places where once you start working there, you kind of never stop working there, mm. and you just you don't go. Even if they fire you, you just sort of don't leave because it's, you know, or you come back on projects years later or whatever because it's, you know, it's it's sort of tough to to get out of the gravity of the projects that, that ILM gets to work on. Yeah. That's, it kind of sounds like it, it's exactly what happened with John Goodson, who's the, the fellow actually putting the, the pieces of the model all together for, for them to, to shoot. And uh, 
the first time I had watched it through, I, I thought they had, had been actually using the the three D prints all, all assembled for doing the the captures with their their motion control system. Uh, but then, yeah, the second time watching it through there, uh, you caught him talking about the fact that uh, they actually cast the 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 finished product, and uh, mm-hmm. you were, you were saying this probably so that they could have different mount points without having to rebuild. And, and reprint everything from scratch, which, which would have been very time-consuming. Yeah, I think one of the guys was saying that they had uh, they had a, a couple of 3D printers running 24-7 for several weeks in order to produce all of the parts that they needed to be able to actually assemble this thing. It's a reasonably, reasonably large-scale model that they were producing. Mm-hmm. It was like 20 to 1 or something like that. Like, it was a pretty sizable thing. You know, it was probably two feet long or something like that, so... Yeah, it was. Uh, it would obviously take some some effort to get that thing printed and and get it out there. Yeah. It was just really neat to see that that handcraft at yeah. work in a, a very digital age. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and then later on, when they were showing off um, the lighting that they were doing when the ship is flying through atmosphere mm-hmm. uh, through a desert, and they actually ended up creating this. Uh, what do they call it? A, a gazebo for the um, a light gazebo for the the model where they were then projecting the sky and the scenery onto these um, these uh, whiteboards around it uh, so that they could get the correct reflections and tones and and sort of ambient visuals on the ship so that it wasn't... Because you know, that stuff's really tough to model mm-hmm. properly if you're using lights or going in afterwards and trying to model it. So this was a way for them to to sort of, again, model it in real life. And it's so much easier to capture in camera than than uh, trying to do it afterwards in post. I will say one of the one of the surprising things was the fact that they were using a relatively inexpensive Canon DSLR for capturing the footage. There are so many better cameras out there, um, you know, that are sort of small cameras that um, you know they could have used. Now, I guess really all you need to be able to do is capture sort of 4K footage, and and you'll be happy with it. But I, I was a little surprised that it was they were using a relatively inexpensive consumer. Yeah, and not and when I say consumer, and I don't just mean, you know, the the fact that Canon is producing consumer cameras. They produce really high end uh, cinema cameras as well, and uh, but just that they were, you know, it was like an EOS R or something like that. Like it was a really, you know, it was like a twenty five hundred dollar DSLR that they were shooting with. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a particularly impressive camera, even as DSLRs go for for shooting film. Well, but they were still able to make magic happen. Yeah, that's true. It's um, you know, they they made it look real good and it uh, it matched up really well with the the CGI models that they were using for it as well. Yes, you could hold the same guitar as Jimi Hendrix, but you won't be able to play like Jimi Hendrix. But you give Jimi Hendrix a guitar from a thrift shop and and he'll still be able to play like Jimi Hendrix. That is true. That is true. So it's, it seemed like it was a bit of a skunkworks project and it was neat to see everybody rally around it and watch uh, I guess in in retrospect for us, but to see um, the scope of the project expand uh, just because uh, it, it, the results were so promising. Yeah, the, I got the impression that somebody, maybe John Favreau, said, you know, it would be really cool if we could do this. What was his comment? He's like, one of the things I learned from Gilmero Gilmer del Toro was if, you know, if you make a model of something, you get to keep it in your house afterwards. And so, you know, he's like, hey, can we make a model of the, <laughs> the Razor Crest? <laughs> and, and from there, it snowballed into... You know, instead of them doing it all in 3D, they decided to do it all in, uh, you know, in, in real life. So that was uh, that was kind of funny. And and obviously the the project creep that happened and it was mm. massive. I, I'm not sure that I would have wanted to be on that team. I would have gotten pretty frustrated with that. Well, sounds like it's somewhat of a, an opportunity of uh, a second lifetime. Yeah. For, for some of these guys coming, coming, coming back and, and getting to do this again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's been a little while since we, we chatted last. Yeah, it's, uh, thanks to uh, the episode we recorded with Christian and broke up into a couple of episodes. It's been nearly a month since we recorded last. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when we left off there, in our, our, our last episode, or we got off on a couple of tangents, um, you had, had dropped something in, into the show notes that, uh, that you'd wanted to, to talk about. Yeah, there's this uh, watch from uh, Ferdinand Bertoud. Uh, this uh, chronometer FB2RE that uh, that came out a little while ago. And uh, I don't even know, is there a date on this? Oh, yeah, August 18th is the date from uh, the Watches by SJX article. So, yeah, it's been a, a little while since this uh, this dropped. Yeah, this this watch is hilarious because it, uh, 
it sort of hits all of the buttons of everything that we've been talking about over the last sort of year or two about precision timekeeping and trying to improve isochronism and, and everything like that. And it's sort of the and in, in some of the other things that we've talked about, like, you know, rouleau triangles and things like that. So it's sort of it's it's a, a bit like off hours bingo. It uh, it's almost as if somebody there has been listening to our show and said, yeah, you know, that's a let's put a constant force uh, mechanism on uh, on this and uh, you know let's do a um you know put a rouleau triangle in here and let's you know, let's throw a fusee in there as well just for fun like it's it 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 seems to be hitting all of those you know all of those notes when uh, when it comes to the different technologies that they've decided to put into this oh and of course rich's favorite it's got a free sprung balance in here <laughs> <laughs> We just got off on a little tangent talking about that. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Rich. We're not going to go on too much of a tangent on this one. Yeah, they've, they've really pulled out all the stops with, with this particular watch. And I appreciate that they sort of changed course a bit from where they were going with their, their FB1 in terms of the case shape. And it's had an octagonal case. Mm. And uh, with the FB2RE, they've gone to a more classically styled case. Although... It is not classically styled, and just, just more yeah. so. It is a round. It's round case. case, yes, as opposed to classically styled, because it's certainly the the exterior of it is is rather unique. And um, I think they were they were talking about how they were trying to reference portholes and things like that, and, and elements of of sort of naval design, because this was inspired by a marine uh, chronometer that uh, had been designed by Ferdinand Bartud. So that they were trying to take that as inspiration and. There's even a nice little viewport on the side, so you can see some of the mechanism as it's going. Mm-hmm. Which, curiously enough, the, the the part that it's showing off is is like the the one of the few parts I actually could have done without uh, <laughs> yeah. on the watch. Uh, I'm, you know, not a huge fan of the fusion chain, but I, I understand why people do it, and, and I would say it's anachronistic. But then you'll turn around and tell me that the mechanical watches themselves are. I was going to say everything about but, a mechanical watch is anachronistic. So you know, if you're going to do something, you may as well go all out, right? I'd push back a little bit on that, in that I think it's actually kind of uh, from cutting edge and futuristic that you've got something that runs without a battery. <laughs> futuristic in, you know, the sense of, of 350 years old, but sure, yeah. Retro-futuristic. Yeah, exactly. But uh, another aspect of the case that, that I do really admire is the, the interior polish on the, the movement side, mm. on the inside of the case. That's not something that, that I can recall ever having seen before on, on any watch. And that to me just speaks to to the quality of finish that went into this entire timepiece. Yeah, the and that's the thing, right? You look at the technology and you say, okay, this is impressive. They have really thrown everything in the kitchen sink in this. And then on top of that, it is finished to a ridiculous level. Some of these macro shots that uh, SJX has posted, and you look at the level of finish that's on these things, and it is shocking how good it is. Yeah, so as as SJX says in his article, the only weakness of the watch is the price at around 210,000 Swiss francs, which is about $230,000 US. It is not exorbitantly priced, but it is expensive. Yeah, it certainly is expensive. I would have to argue. I think it is rather exorbitantly priced. It may be justifiable in its price, but it isn't um, certainly isn't the sort of thing that you're going to go out and and buy a handful of for your groomsmen at a wedding, right? Like you're or at least I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to spend, uh, you know, houses worth of, of money on a on a watch, unfortunately. But it's uh, it is shocking just how good everything in this is. And again, some you know we see these technological marvels, and sometimes you look at the the finish that's on them, and and is like, wow, okay, you guys kind of cheaped out on the finish on on that watch. But this case, they went all out on everything, and it's uh, it's rather impressive. Another aspect of the, the case that I, I quite admired was the inlay in the crown there. So a laser-etched piece of ceramic. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a, a nice touch. Yeah, that was an interesting touch. I'm, I've, you know, as, as we've talked about, I've been starting to play around with laser engraving and and uh, playing with a, both a, a fiber laser and a CO2 laser. And I, I've never played around with ceramics. Got, I think I've got a little bit of that around some machinable ceramics. It'd be interesting to try uh, engraving it, laser engraving it, and see how it works see what's involved with it but yeah the this looks great it's a it's a wonderful look great contrast as well the black ceramic mm-hmm. have, you, have you taken a piece of sapphire to your laser yet i have not i it's tempting though i've uh i just bought a couple of um 
sample uh, crystals for some watches that I'm working on. So I suspect one or two of them will probably not be the correct size. So maybe I'll uh, I'll give it a try and see if I can do some laser engraving on it. I could laser engrave your, your Silverhand logo, just like the, the Omega logo or the Rolex logo on some yeah. of their crystals. Yeah, exactly. Right in the center Very of it. Very subtly. Yeah. yeah. See if I can get that working. Um, I, as I said, I haven't, I'm not sure what would be involved in 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 laser engraving a non-metal like that. Like I'm, I don't even know what I where I would start on the parameter. So that, that would take some uh, some fiddling around with it because certainly there's there's no guides out there for here's how to take your your synthetic sapphire and laser engrave it with your fiber laser. Um, certainly would have made Vianney Halter's life much easier back when he was making his <laughs> sapphire automatic winding rotors and yeah. trying to drill through a. a piece of sapphire yeah yeah that would have uh oh, what a nightmare that would have been yeah i'm sure a laser will go through it like butter uh. <laughs> huh. maybe not quite as fast the other problem there with the sapphire of course is that you're also dealing with uh something that's translucent so you you know oftentimes your laser needs to sort of quote unquote hit something in order to actually start affecting it and so that like that's one of the reasons why high polished silver is a problem because it just reflects straight off the surface. And so in, in this case, it it's not reflecting off the surface. It's just going straight through the surface. So I'd be kind of curious. You'd have to get your focus point exactly right and, and hope that it's actually doing what you want it to do. Well, underneath the sapphire crystal on the Ferdinand Beltoud is a, a lovely enamel dial, yet another white or black. And it, it's a, a two-part dial, and it has all the, the numerals applied in enamel as well. And uh, one of the neat aspects uh, of this that I found interesting, which is, again, it's not something I had heard of being done before uh, in a watch, or outside of, of a watch for that matter, and that is that they set the enamel on a piece of steel rather than gold or copper, or a more common substrate like that. Mm-hmm. And the reasoning was so that they, they wouldn't have to counter enamel the back of it, and they could have a, a thinner dial that way. Yeah, that's interesting. I So the... The challenges with enamel come from, and the reason why we counter enamel stuff is because as the enamel cools, it um, it contracts. There's a coefficient of expansion in the in the enamel. Uh, so depending on whether you're talking about it at room temperature versus at 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, where it's uh, a liquid, there is a change in it's thermal expansion. And the same thing happens with the metal. And so typically what you do is you buy an enamel that's actually engineered for the metal that you are enameling on. So usually the enamels that you would use for something like steel are actually different than the enamels that you would use for precious metal because the coefficient of expansion is actually different. And with metals, you can run into problems where even though the enamel will actually fuse to the metal, the coefficient of expansion is different enough that as it cools, all of a sudden it it shatters because it's fused to the metal and now the metal is contracted at a different rate than the than the enamel has. I'm wondering if also the enamel that they're using happens to be sort of more dialed into the exact coefficient of expansion of the metal that they're of the steel that they're using. Uh, it may be that they're you know that it's a, a closer match. Uh, because of course the enamels that I'm using for my work, I'm you know they're designed to work on copper, gold, silver, and even though all of those metals have a similar coefficient of expansion, it's not identical. And so some metals will work better than others, and I'm sure that some of those enamels are also going to work better than others on the on the metals. So I wonder if also that that it just happens to be that their metal and their enamel are better matched from that point of view. I almost wonder what would be easier to do to, to tune your alloy of, of steel to match the enamel or to, to tune the enamel to match the steel. Because I, I know you can subject mm. the, the enamels to various sorts of, of acid to change the point at which they, they fuse, but I don't know how to sort of impact their, their rate of expansion or contraction for that matter. Yeah, that's something that gets into a, a whole level of, of chemistry that I don't know anything about in, in terms of enamels. I know that it's um, a lot of that stuff is sort of closely guarded secrets and is, you know, sort of a lot of black magic. It's sort of a non-trivial thing to design an enamel properly. And so, you know, again, I I don't know what's involved. I just know from my own experiments some of the problems that I've run into where 
just because you can get it diffused doesn't mean that it's actually going to play nicely afterwards. Hmm. And in the case of one of your pens, you wouldn't really have a need to, to counter enamel the, the inside of mm-hmm. the, the shaft because it's not going to, to bow or, or go concave on you the way a, a watch dial would. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the advantages of, of enameling on a cylinder is that you ideally have equal forces on the entire surface of the of the pen. Um, you do have some other issues that you have to deal with, but you know you're you're not getting the enamel pulling and twisting the the part out of flat, uh, essentially. So that is problematic, and I know that you can have some serious problems as you start getting into larger and larger pieces. Uh, I know a few people who have enameled large pieces, like you know think about something like the size of a small desk, like a small table. And uh, dealing with those forces are challenging because the the enamel is incredibly strong. That that ability to shift its its shape as and contract as it's uh, as it's cooling is very impressive. And even on something like a you know a disc that's let's say two or three inches in diameter, you can take a disc which has a very slight dome to it, and all of a sudden it'll have a cup in it at the end if you don't counter enamel it. So it's managed to not only, you know, it's not taking a flat piece, it's actually taking a dome piece, which has, should have some some strength, and it'll actually pop it the other direction uh, just through this the strength of the enamel cooling. So hmm. it, it is remarkable, the, the strength that it has. Uh, and again, that depends on how well fused it is to the metal, because in other cases, I've had it just pop right off. Like I've had the enamel pop right off of the, the metal because it hasn't fused properly, and as it's cooling... It just says, "All right, I've given up and popped off." So yeah, it, it's it's uh, enameling is is frustrating. I, I cannot imagine putting something the size of a desk in, into a kiln. I, I would not want to be yeah. responsible or, or liable for how the enamel turned out on <laughs> on a piece like that, or even just yeah. trying to rotate something like that in, in yeah. the furnace. Yeah, yeah, it's it is remarkable some of the extreme work that people do with enamels, and uh, in, in some cases it's it's not so difficult because. They've got a lot of leeway. They're using, like in this case, one of the advantages they have is that they're using an opaque enamel as the base, mm-hmm. right? That opaque white hides a lot of sins, right? You can, you don't care about the uh, the consistency of the enamel. You don't care about the exact thickness of the enamel over the metal. You don't care if there's air pockets in it. Uh, I mean, all those things can have an effect on on the final piece, and you know, might have problems if you're polishing it or whatever, but. At the end of the day, you don't see those microscopic air bubbles like you do with a translucent enamel. Uh, that's one of the challenges when you're going over guilloche is that you have all these little air pockets that that sort of form inside of the cuts of your um, of your engine turning. So you you know it's it is challenging when you're dealing with that. Um, and your flux, for instance, as it's coming out of the um, you know of the enamel, that can be problematic as well because it can form little air pockets and stuff. So. Um, the fact that they've used a solid white enamel that hides a lot of sins. Right? They're they're they've they've solved a lot of problems just by doing that alone. You know, minor variances in the thickness of the enamel are not really an issue. Um, and actually, speaking of that, one of the interesting trends that I've seen a lot of lately are these fume dials mm-hmm. that people are doing. And it's funny because you know, they're people are talking about oh, these are great. These are you know, they're they're innovative and things like that. And and I look at it as an enamelist, and I'm less like. Oh, that's actually a really good way of hiding a problem because one of the issues that you run into with enamel is that if it's not all exactly the same thickness, then you get dark spots and light spots and it, it looks sort of splotchy. But what what's happening with these Fume dials is that they're intentionally making parts of the dial thicker than others in the enamel. And that's what gets you that transition from a pale color to a darker color, let's say from the center to the outside. They've just put a little dome into the part and then they've enameled it, and then they've ground the top of the enamel flat so that it's thicker around the edges than it is in the center. And it's a great way of of not having to deal with getting really consistent color across the entire face of your dial. Uh, and it also happens to look good. So there are you know, sort of advantages from both both senses. And you don't have to worry about a consistent finish across the top either, or yeah. little air bubbles that, yeah. that might rupture pieces of dust because so you're going to grind that all up. Exactly. There, there's so many advantages to doing it. And, and, and again, it looks good and it's it's popular right now. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious to play around with it a little bit. I haven't seen anybody do any over-engine turning. Uh, I've seen some textured work with both the enamel textured as well as the silver textured underneath. So it'd be kind of fun to play with some enamel or some uh, engine turning and see how it looks and 
see if it uh, see if it's worthwhile pursuing. Mm-hmm. And on a flux note, I'd actually be curious to know what sort of flux they're using to get the enamel to adhere to to the steel. And I'm not clear on whether they're using a stainless steel or uh, a high carbon steel or, or what it is they're using. Probably going to be a high carbon steel. From my my little bit of reading, as I said, I I don't know a lot about uh, enameling on steel. Uh, I've done a little bit of reading on it. Um, Thompson Enamels out of the U.S. They've actually published some good articles about uh, about the science of of enamels and some of the differences between the different types of enamels that are out there. I think it's going to be a carbon steel. I don't think it's going to be stainless. And uh, the flux isn't actually going to help with the um, with it fusing so much. Uh, the flux is really about um, sort of keeping the metal uh, clean as you're applying heat to it, right? That's what you're you're trying to prevent oxides forming on the surface of the metal, so that there's no barrier between the metal and the enamel as you're actually you know you're fusing it. So that that's really the trick with a lot of the fluxes. It's it's more about protecting that metal underneath it, and that's why you really want to try and get a complete layer on of enamel on the part in that first firing because that way you can then you know you don't have to worry about the metal underneath it's it's no longer going to uh, oxidize as quickly you're still going to get a reaction between the oxides in the enamel and the metal and that's what you want because that's what gets you the color that you're looking for but you don't have to worry about the metal itself oxidizing and causing problems with fusing to the the glass afterwards something else that you blew my mind with recently with respect to stainless steel is the casting of stainless steel. This yeah. this I I had not heard of. Yeah, it's it's a common thing in the jewelry industry when you're making inexpensive stainless steel jewelry is is actually casting 316L stainless steel jewelry. Yeah. It sounds like quite the the process that goes into it to make sure that you don't end up with any porosity and and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's funny once you start getting into high well, with all casting there there's always porosity problems, but there are a little bit easier to deal with in some of the lower temperature metals like silver and gold. And I can't believe that I say that those are lower temperature metals because they, you know, you're still casting them at close to 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so they're not exactly low temperature. It's not like lead or, or uh, gallium or something like that. But, uh, but in terms of useful metals that we're using in jewelry and stuff like that, it's, they're still relatively low temperature because when you get into things like platinums, you're talking, you know, 3,500, uh, when you're talking about um, tantalum, what was it I saw the other day? Tantalum's like 4,800 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. Like it's, it's obscene the the temperatures you need to get to 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 melt tantalum properly. Stainless steel is is not too bad. It's sort of in the middle at about 2,800. Uh, so it's probably close to a lot of bronzes in terms of its casting temperature. And as you get into those those temperature ranges, um, you start having bigger and bigger problems with porosity, with uh, oxygen in the metal. And so a lot of them are being cast. Uh, typically, you pull a vacuum on your casting chamber, and then you backfill it with argon, pure argon. And that argon tends to, to cause fewer problems with the metal. The same thing, we, you know, we do this with um, when we're casting the platinum metals, we typically want to use a, um, you know, vacuum and then backfill with argon to, to do that. And so the same thing's being done with uh, with the stainless steel. So it's not a trivial setup to be able to do this kind of casting. It's certainly not something that I'm able to do here in the shop. I'm impressed by the, the science and, and technique behind it and, and that it's yeah. doable at a, a mass scale at all. This is quite quite neat. Yeah, it's it's an impressive uh, impressive setup and uh, some of the some of the other things that we were talking about, um, Teresa Frey at Techform Casting. Uh, she's somebody that's spoken at the Santa Fe Symposium a number of times. Um, I've, I've met her and chatted with her about a bunch of of the technology that she's using. Uh, she's been she's presented a number of papers on a process that she's been helping develop a lot, which is uh, hot isostatic pressing or HIP. And in that case, they're using this this high temperature chamber under pressure with inert gases to actually compress the metal afterwards and f- and force the porosity out of the, the casting. So even, you know, no matter how good you are and no matter how controlled your environment is, you're always going to end up with some level of porosity. And the impressive thing about this is that they're basically eliminating it by sitting there and squishing it out under high, you know, high pressure. And uh, the results that they're getting is really impressive. And, and 
certainly if you look at some of Teresa's papers, she talks about the the techniques and exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. And yeah, it's uh it's remarkable what they're doing. So I'm I'm curious to get some parts cast in stainless steel and see, you know, how how good it actually is, particularly when it comes to my lugs. Like the the lugs are, are one of the challenging bits of, of a case and especially if you're using a profile that can't be turned easily. And um, you know, the top profile of the lugs, if they can be turned, then that's that's pretty simple. Um but in my case, that top profile can't be turned properly. And so it's a little bit more challenging to machine and get a good surface and get a nice sort of consistent um, edge out of that uh, or curve out of it. And it would certainly be advantageous if I can, you know, get get some of those parts cast. And especially considering the the reduction in porosity that she's getting out of those castings. Mm-hmm. Um, looking forward to, to seeing how those turn out for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for anyone else who, who's curious uh, to learn more about hot isostatic pressing, we'll be sure to link to some of her papers in the, the show notes for you to read up on as well. And uh, just looping back to the Ferdinand Bertude, mm-hmm. one last bit of metallurgy talk on, on the dial there is the, the second hand. It's made uh, of titanium and it's blued. And uh, unlike the, the hour or the minute hand, unfortunately, uh, for some of those reasons, it, it is not highly polished. It does not have that mirror finish mm. on it. And instead, they, they've sort of sandblasted it. And uh, part of the reasoning there, they say, is that uh, they were aiming for, for thinness and making that particular part as light as possible. So to try and achieve a black polish on, on something that thin, uh, it's just much easier to do more of a frotted finish mm-hmm. on, on that hand. But that that is really the only area where it seems like they uh, cut any corners on on their their level of of finish, and I'm not sure how easy it is to black polish titanium. Anyways, I don't think t- titanium is a relatively soft metal, and it it tends to um tends to roll a lot, and so it's you really the the harder the metal is, the easier it is to get a black mm-hmm. polish on it. So I d- I don't even know if it's possible, regardless of the thickness of the material. I don't know if it's even possible to get a a good black polish on titanium. Debatoon has blown my mind on a number of occasions, having achieved yeah. a, an incredibly high level of polish on, on titanium and often on shapes where it must have taken an obscene amount of, of time mm. and effort to, to pull it off. So it, it is achievable, uh, but I myself uh, am not a fan of polishing titanium. <laughs> no, I, I can't imagine that it would be uh, it would be fun. Sort of like, uh, it, well, it's even worse than trying to polish something like aluminum or something like that. It's It's kind of miserable to... To, to polish. It's so moving on to the, the movement side of the watches where the, the real magic is in, in terms of the level of, of fit and finish of this timepiece. Uh, to my eye, just a, a absolutely superb level of finish up there with the, the best of them. Hmm. And uh, certainly no shortage of decisions on, on ways to show off that, that level of finish either from the, the interior angles to the incredibly fine spokes on, on the three-arm stop wheel for the, the remontoir. There's the, I've said mind-boggling too much this episode, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A very impressive level of, of finish. It's giving me some ideas on on where I should go and what I should try and do with some of the the finishing eventually that I want to do on movements. I don't want to do any movement finishing on on these, like, at a 7001s that I'm working with right now, but for some of my own custom movement stuff in the future, I it's nice to get sort of great examples of this so that I can decide, okay, if I'm going to do something, if I'm going to go out of my way to to make a custom watch movement, you know, I might as well put the time and effort into finishing it properly. Well, what does great finishing look like? And this is one of those examples that you can sit down and say, here is here's an example of great finishing. And not only is it great finishing, but there is every possible combination of finishing surfaces that are in here that you can you know, take a look at. Like I, I'm impressed with the, you know, sort of the dial plates. They've done a rough textured dial um, on, you know, for the plates, but then they've also gone off and done, you know, really high polished surfaces in other areas. And so you can get great examples of, of a bunch of different finishing techniques in here and sort of pick and choose what you want to try and accomplish. And this gives you, an, a, you know, sort of a bar to try and reach, which is nice. It's, uh, it's good to see something like that. And beyond just the the finish too, there's the there are the design choices made in in laying out the movement. And much like Regep, Regepi's Chronometre Contemporain, this is a very symmetrical mm-hmm. 
movement, and it's laid out in that way. And, and we as, as humans tend to tend like, like that symmetry. symmetry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, every, yeah it, I, we could probably go on for hours talking about this watch. And in fact, we, you and I have talked to for probably an hour or more at this point or, you know, off air. Uh, about this watch so I, we we won't continue going on for too much longer i don't think because we could just keep going and going it is everything about this is great yeah, one one other aspect just i think worth touching on uh in terms of the the finish that i think lends it a, a different sort of air and and depth than you'd get in a lot of other movements is the fact that they've gone for for more of a, a pillar plate layout in, in the old school sense so mm-hmm. a lot of bridges in modern calibers, or pretty much any bridge in a modern caliber, is going to lay flush against the the main plate, uh, whereas they've made the decision to raise everything up on on pillars so that the bridges are are floating over the the main plate, which lends even more contrast to to those high-polished chamfers and and the frosting on the, the main plate beneath. This actually reminds me a lot of the dial side of the movements from, you know, Breguet or uh, Daniels or, uh, you know, Roger Smith, somebody like that. Uh, this this sort of has that feel in terms of those raised uh, elements, the the pillar, you know, up on pillars like that. A lot of the the dial side of movements from from those makers looked very much like that, and and it's uh, it's nice to see this on the uh, on the movement side of the movement. And under a crystal, so we can actually see what the heck it looks like. Mm-hmm. And you, you did touch on the the Rulo triangle mm-hmm. there very briefly. We've gone off on tangents about Rulo triangles <laughs> before, so so we will not go off on a, a tangent here. Uh, but one notable improvement to this particular mechanism, which is based on a, a Gaffner system for for the Remontoir, is that they have actually machined the Rulo triangle that operates the remontoir out of ruby mm-hmm. uh, so that will give a really nice coefficient of, of friction there as that that's moving about and, and causing the remontoir to deliver a, a constant amount of energy to the balance wheel well and also something they said about that is he is that it, that's at a point in the mechanism that has very very low torque there's you know you have to be careful about how much energy you're using as part of an you know part of that that mechanism uh, just because it is so far away from the uh, the power, the mainspring itself, so doing everything you can in this case by machining that um, that cam out of uh, out of ruby certainly helps with all of that. And I imagine that it must have taken them some time to tweak that and get it get that right balance of how do you affect that, or how do you make that mechanism, how do you make that constant force mechanism without adversely affecting the um, you know the the timing of it, just because you're you're sucking up so much power from, um, you know, from the the mechanism from that far down from the the powertrain. So it's yeah, it's a they've they've done an impressive job with that, and I I really like some of the design choices they've made with it. Um, Derek Pratt's watch that um, he isn't really working on anymore because he's no longer with us, unfortunately, has a similar mechanism in it as well. Uh, they made a couple of different design choices in theirs. Um, but I really like that that Gaffner mechanism, that remontoir that they've got in there, uh, and I think they, I think I've also seen it used not just uh, this is on the escape wheel. Uh, I've also seen it used on the second wheel as well. And in fact, I think that's originally how Gaffner used it, if I remember correctly, was on the second wheel. Um, so there's a couple of different places that you can use it, but using it on the escape wheel like this, you do have to be really careful about how much um, how much energy you're losing in there just because you don't have a lot of energy at that point to uh you know to to lose mm-hmm. and another watch that dropped recently that also has a, a novel constant force mechanism in it is the t-zero tourbillon from seiko and this is a, another piece from their brand new studio in japan and uh unlike the the ferdinand Beltude piece it, it is not astronomically expensive it is not exorbitantly expensive it's uh you can't buy it <laughs> yeah one would say that, that it's it's impossibly expensive fair enough <laughs> and, and and honestly this looking at this movement it is the least looking the least seiko looking watch movement i think i have ever seen mm. it, it does not it looks like something that max would make uh at mbnf more than as something that uh, that seiko would make it is 
it definitely has a, a very different aesthetic than just about any other Seiko caliber that has, has ever been made. Mm-hmm. This is very much a, a concept piece, but uh, they are certainly flexing their, their chops here in, in producing this. I mean, it, yeah, it looks absolutely nothing like the, the 9SA5 that we had, had talked about a few episodes back, which also comes from, from the same studio. And, mm-hmm. and it sounds like um, these two watches, or watch movements rather, uh, sort of influenced one another uh, during the, the process of, of developing them there mm-hmm. at Grand Seiko. Now, I, I'm not positive exactly how the constant force mechanism is, is operating in this particular watch. Uh, but but I did catch that uh, they're using a, a five-armed stop wheel uh, rather than hmm. the, the three-armed right. variant that, that they've got there in, in the field non Yeah, I haven't seen any good uh, explanations about what they're doing from a technical point of view. Um, looking at it visually, as I, as I mentioned, it doesn't look like uh, something that, that Seiko would make. But there's certainly some interesting, you know, from an aesthetic point of view, there's some interesting aesthetics in here. Some of the shapes they've chosen to use some of their choice of, um, I don't know what they're using as a base material for it, I, I, probably a uh, uh, nickel silver, but the finish that they've put on it is, is a very dark finish. It's almost like a gunmetal finish. That has then allowed them to create uh, a lot of interesting contrast with gold metals and with um, with looks like blued steel or blued titanium in there. So they've some of their design choices in here, the shapes of some of the hands that they've put on it, very, very interesting and um, certainly gives me ideas for, you know, ways that I could uh, shape parts in the future, whether they be hands or whether they be, you know, cocks or whatever they are. This gives you the option, you know, this sort of gives you some ideas for, oh, yeah, that's a great look for, you know, for a mechanism inside or a part inside of a watch and creating the contrast that they have is is quite remarkable. Yeah, for that, that blued metal is almost assuredly blued titanium or anodized yeah. aluminum, just because of the the inertial forces at play there rotating that tourbillon carriage. Mm-hmm. You're going to want to make that as light as possible, particularly because they they've been actually been able to achieve a performance of plus or minus zero point five seconds a day, which is a, that's remarkable. An order of magnitude improvements over the cost rating. So it's really quite impressive, and um, my hat's always off to, to any manufacturer who actually pursues making a tourbillon mechanism to do what a, a tourbillon mechanism was meant to do. Yes. Unlike these tourbillons out of China that are you know, plus or minus <laughs> 60 seconds a day. They've really taken it to that that extreme level. I'll be curious to see how much of this actually ends up in a production watch eventually, and if it, you know, obviously they're, this is partially being done as a as an experiment and as a as a you know, sort of trial to see what can work and what doesn't work. And I'll be curious to see how much of this shows up in a watch, you know, three or four years from now and see which elements we actually get. I, I can imagine that producing this must be astronomically expensive. And I guess that's the other question is, is Grand Seiko interested in getting into that level of the market? Uh, obviously, they've, you know, they do produce some expensive pieces, but this, I think, would go into a whole other level in terms of, of what they've produced in the past. Yeah, I would imagine if they were to put a price tag on this piece, they, they would finally crack that six-figure mark. Oh, yeah, easily. I can't imagine this being, like, this is in that for number two sort of price range, right? I can't see it being, you know, less than sort of a quarter million dollars just based on the amount of work that would be involved in actually making this. Forget whatever they do with the case and the dial and everything else. Just the, the movement alone is is ridiculous in terms of its the machining that's required for this. Mm-hmm. And as Jack Forster pointed out when, when he wrote about this for Hodinkee, uh, nothing makes a, a collector want to watch more than being told he cannot Can't have, have it. it. Yes. <laughs> you know that there are so many collectors out there with money who are saying this and this thing. Really? There's no price tag on this? <laughs> so you've been getting up to some interesting machining here in your, your own studio. Yeah, there's been a, a few um, a few interesting projects and, and things that are a lot of making tools for tools to make, well, not other tools in, in every case, but sometimes it's other tools. tools all the way down. It's, it's, yeah, it's tools all the way down. And, um, uh, you know, lately I've been working on some, uh, some tool posts for my Tripan tool holder, which is, um, it's a, a very accurate um, quick change tool post that I use on my lathes, which is, uh, which is a really nice design. Uh, so I've been working on some tool holders for that. And uh, that actually led us to talking uh, a little while ago about sign vices, which is something that you hadn't uh, hadn't actually seen before. 
I still haven't seen. You have not shown me. I've not shown you the sign. I've seen videos now. I've seen pictures on the internet. I've had people explain them to me from the other side of the world, but I I have not seen your sign vice. After we're finished recording here, John, I will go and show you my sign vice and and show you how it's set up. Um, For for the listener who has no idea what the heck we're talking about, uh, this isn't a sign vice as in like S I G N. This isn't something that has a you know has a big sign across the front of it saying you know don't touch or something like that. This is an S-I-N-E vice, and uh, if you remember back, way back to your high school mathematics class, and uh, you remember your trigonometry, um, sine is uh, one of the ways that you can uh, calculate the angle of a right-angle triangle. And so a sine vice is actually a vice which can be adjusted, the angle on it can be adjusted using um, a block, a very accurate block that sits between the base of it and uh, a pin and that allows you to get extremely precise angles out of your uh, out of your vice and in my case i needed it because the tool holders that i'm making these these tripan tool holders they actually have um you know an odd angle that's on uh, one of the sides so i wanted to be able to a grip it very well and be able to hold the part properly but b be able to actually maintain that um that angle and um, the the probably the best way of doing it is in a sign vice like this. And the the mechanism for adjusting your sign vice is, is something we touched on way back in our episode on the book The Perfectionists. In order to get precision out of your sign vice, uh, you need to have uh, a way of of getting that um, that pin raised up uh, an exact amount from the base. And so we use precision gauge blocks for doing that. And gauge blocks are, are impressive because they have been machined and ground to a very, very accurate level. And in fact, they are um, not only are they incredibly accurate, but they are extremely flat and flat enough that if you ring two of them together, so if you actually put two of them together and twist them, uh, they will not come apart easily. They, you, you're actually going to wring the air out of the, um, out of the gap between them. And so they will actually stick together, which is uh, which is sort of a fun little trick. They can give it to the strongest person you know, and they wouldn't be able to pull them together. <laughs> but if you if you shear them apart, slide them across each other, then yeah, then you can very easily take them apart. Yeah, they will they will shear apart, but they won't uh, they won't pull apart easily. They, you've uh, you've removed all of that air from there, and you've actually created a vacuum in between them, which is uh, which is rather impressive. All the little atoms are making up. So yeah, it's a it's sort of an interesting way of, of machining things. It's it's one of those things that a lot of people don't. Uh, uh, don't ever see uh, machinists. It's a you know it's one of those tricks that machinists know about. But you know if you if your kids ever asking you you know when, when am I ever going to need this trigonometry thing? Well, uh, sadly I need to remember how to do it all the time when I'm in the shop when I'm using something like this. It's uh, it's something that that I actually need to use. For anyone who, who might not understand or, or quite grok what what it is you're making with your your sign vice, what are these these tripan? posts that, that you're building with the sign vice? So these, these tool holders are, are designed to hold lathe tools in them and the so they match up with a tool post uh, that is mounted on the lathe and then the tool holders slide onto that tool post and they're designed to be able to quickly move the tools on and off of the lathe and as part of that we also want to be able to accurately put them back on the lathe so that when you, you remove a tool let's say, to be able to measure something, you want to be able to put that tool back on and know that it's exactly where uh, it was when you, uh, when you took it off. And so these, these tool holders are designed to be able to accurately fit back onto the lathe so that you don't have to worry about that tool having moved a great deal between, them, uh, you know, between times that you've actually uh, put it on and off. Uh, and that includes things like the height, the center height, as we've talked about before. Uh, center height of a tool is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to make sure that you're, especially when you're dealing with micro mechanics like this, uh, the further off you are from the center, the more likely you're going to have problems with cut quality. You're going to have problems with the part catching on, um, you know, on the tool and and being thrown from the the lathe. Uh, you can also end up with um, serious problems with uh, tool wear because now instead of cutting, uh, you're actually rubbing, and so you're not getting a proper chip formed off of it, and so you're you're actually having issues because of that. So these these tool posts and tool holders are designed to to make my life easier as I'm changing tools out and I'm I'm going back and forth between the different types of tools that I use on a regular basis. Are there any other tools you've been 
been putting together to help make your life easier? Yeah, so I've also been working on a on a wobble stick, which is a, a fun little tool that um, that's been used by watchmakers for centuries to be able to accurately center features on the lathe, uh, primarily holes that you're working on. And so with a wobble stick, you've got you're basically using leverage. You know, one end is on a sh- the short part of the lever, and it is the part that you stick in the hole that you're trying to center. And then the other end of the wobble stick is very very far away. Um, from the center of, of rotation. And it's, you know, as you have very, very small movements on the short side of the lever, you get very large movements on the long side of the lever. So it allows you to very precisely see where you're off in terms of centering that hole. And you can you can then adjust the the part in the lathe and be able to replace it on the lathe or you know, place it the first time on the lathe if you need to, to, to center exactly on the hole that you're working on. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a fun little use of levers and physics to, to be able to see exactly where a part is and, and with what is really a very primitive tool, be able to, to center something with an incredible amount of accuracy. Now, of, of course, being Chris Manning, you, you would not be satisfied with just simply using a very primitive tool. No, of course not. Of course not. Why, why would I go with a primitive tool when I can when I can create an over-engineered tool that I can uh, I can use on my machine? So, so how have you pimped out your wobble stick? Well, I don't. It's sort of a difficult thing to to explain, uh, you know, and and over the podcast like this. But there's most most wobble sticks are really just going to have a uh, a fork that is held on the you know that's sort of sitting upright. And the wobble stick sits on that fork and it's just sort of free floating there. And instead of free floating it, what I've done is I've actually captured the wobble stick in a, a universal joint. And that universal joint can then allow it to rotate left and right as necessary or up and down as necessary in order to stay centered in that hole. And the reason that I've done that is because I want to be able to mount this wobble stick in one of these tool post holders that I've got that I'm making for the uh, the tripan tool, ho- tool post. And that way I know that when that wobble stick goes back onto the machine, it's always perfectly at the right center height. One of the problems that I find with, you know, the way that other people have designed their wobble sticks is that there can be variance in terms of that that fork that's sitting there and the stick as it's sitting in the in the fork. And so you can, you know, if you've got chips sitting underneath the, you know, on the bed of the lathe or whatever, then you can run into problems with that. Or, you know, if you've, for instance, if you've set up the wobble stick so that it's designed to run on the actual bed of the lathe, well, if your cross slide is in the way, now you've got to move the cross slide out of the way in order to get the the mount for the wobble stick in place so that it's at the right height. Like there's just, there are a lot of, a lot of annoyances with the way that they've been made traditionally. So as I said, I'm, I'm basically using a universal joint in mine and it'll allow me to get better repeatability so that when I go and drop my wobble stick back on the part on the lathe then I know that it's going to be you know at exactly that center height and it's it's sort of easy for me to to work with and and know that I'm not fighting the part or fighting the tool because it's not where it's supposed to be so the extra effort on the front end should save you some effort on the on the, the back, back end. end yeah that that's the idea we'll see uh, I mean and you know the, these ideas are great until we try them and and so we'll see if it actually works well enough for what I'm trying to do the the idea of the universal joint is, is certainly not new, you know, and it's and it should work well enough for what I'm trying to do. So we'll see what happens, and uh, yeah, I think it'll be fine. Um, the biggest thing is getting getting it so that it will move freely, and also getting it so that that ratio between the short side and the long side is long enough. Like in my case, um, I'm looking at probably one centimeter on one side and probably a hundred centimeters on the other side. So there will be a very obvious difference in movement between one and the other. Even if all you're doing is moving a hundredth of a millimeter on one side, you'll be able to see a, a millimeter of movement on the long side of it. And that's, that's really what you want to do. And, and visually, you know, the human eye can obviously see quite easily a smaller movement than a millimeter. And in fact, you can also put a little gauge on, you know, gauge chart or whatever beside the, the long end of it, and you'll be able to see very easily how much it's moving now of course all of this is not just in not just for the work that i'm doing on my own watches because frankly 
I don't need wobble sticks for my own watch. That's I'm not, you know, I'm just dropping a movement in. You, you don't need to make sure everything's upright and, and true and your bazooka calibers. No, no, that's the, the, you know, presumably they've already done that for me. That's the hope. That's why I'm paying the money. Is in fact good money. <laughs> is that they've already done all that hard work for me. But it, it is useful for some other things, like you know, if you're making your own watch movement from scratch. Oh, oh really? Yeah. What, what, what is this all about? <laughs> Well, I don't know, John. You and I have talked a lot about over the years of uh, of different designs, and you know, we've even gone so far as to talk a little bit about you know watchmaking and and starting to read through some of that. But something that's even more interesting than just reading through watchmaking and talking about it is actually trying to make a watch. Yeah, actually, you know, it'd be a lot more fun if we actually cut some metal. You know? Oh yeah, yeah, no. yeah. What's taking so long? <laughs> So one of the things, and in fact, we've talked a little bit about the, you know, Christian Lass's master, master watchmaking course that he has on how to, how to rebuild the, the bridges and cocks in a, in a 6497. And so we've decided we're going to try our hand at making one. So we get to, uh, make some, make some chips and actually design our own watch movement or at least parts of the watch movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all, all we've done up to this point is, is just uh, do a bit of, of drawing and, and throw a, a couple of ideas out there. We, we've yet to actually dig into uh, any metal yet. And uh, I was a little reticent about uh, basing it on a, an ETA 6497, uh, but but I've come around to it, uh, primarily because that's just going to be a whole lot easier. And I will in no way be attached to it. Well, that's the, that's the nice thing about it is that it is an easy movement to work on. It's nice and large. It's simple to use. It's commonly available. And at the end of the day, we're not going to be deeply in love with it. Um, you know, it's not as if it's going to be a completely custom movement. But the nice thing is that it gets us the opportunity to try some of these things that, you know, we've been watching in Christian's videos and that we've been reading about in watchmaking and that we've been, you know, talking about when we talk about these watches that other people are are making in terms of design and you know, we can make design choices that we want. And, uh, you know, again, we can try finishing and doing some of these finishing techniques that we see on, you know, watches like the Ferdinand Bartud and, and whatnot. So we can actually try our hand at some of that and see, you know, what works well, what doesn't work well. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of an interesting opportunity to experiment with, with some of the things that we've been talking about and, and try our hand at it ourselves. Yeah, so for this initial foray, we'll, we'll be keeping the the main plate as is which is certainly thrown a, a number of, of constraints mm-hmm. on the project but uh we're going to embrace those those constraints and allow us to to move a little quicker and experiment faster and, and just play around with things yeah yeah i think we've made some interesting choices we're, we've decided to replace all of the bridges and the uh, cock and design our own and i think we've made some interesting choices with that we're not quite ready to share some of the the visuals of it just yet but we'll we'll talk a little bit about it as we go um, just because I think it's interesting for you and I to talk about it and, uh, and then we can, and some of the challenges that we've had, like, well, you know, we, we went off and made some, uh, I, I had a print made of a 6497 in, uh, in quite large scale. Uh, I think it's like 20 to one scale and we sort of drew on it one day with some, some markers and, and pencil crayons and to sort of get a sense of where we wanted to, to look at it. But then as we started modeling it up in Fusion to sort of get a better sense of proportions and whatnot, we uh, we actually changed our mind on a couple of design choices and and decided to uh, to accentuate a few of the shapes and curves that we were working on. And certainly, you know, the average person looking at this uh, or even the, you know, the, the more informed person looking at this, they're not going to know that this is a 6497 by the time we're done with it. I don't know if I'd make that strong a boast yet. I, I think we've we've made enough to we've made enough design changes to it, and uh, you know even going so far as to move things, some of the things like screws and whatnot. So certainly the average, you know the the person who's familiar with the six four nine seven is is not going to see many of the cues that they would recognize from from that movement when they look at this. Mm-hmm. Yes, it should not be immediately obvious, no. but to a more scrutinizing eye, they'll be able to pick up on, on plenty of oh, yeah. little cues. Yeah, yeah. So this is, an, this is an interesting way of starting with it. And as you said, this provides us with a lot of design constraints, which are I actually find really important, especially when learning something new. It's It's much easier to work within constraints because it forces you to uh, you know, to sort of figure out problems. If you can change absolutely everything, you, 
you're not necessarily forced to confront some of the design challenges that you have. So I like, I like that as, um, you know, sort of as a designer having some of those constraints. And this will eventually lead us down the road of figuring out, okay, we can experiment with this little part of the movement uh, because that's the only thing that we're changing. And eventually we'll have tried enough of these design changes that we'll then be able to go, well, you know what, let's just start from scratch and we'll have a much better understanding and, and, uh, of what, uh, you know, what we want to do with a movement or what I want to do with a movement. I don't know how far you decide to go down this road as well with me, but, um, certainly it'll, you know, this will give me a lot of the tools, the design tools that I need to eventually make what I want to make, which is going to be smaller than a 6497 to be sure. Uh, that's, that's a limit that I'm limitation that I'm not very happy with. Uh, you know, I want to be able to make smaller watches for people who prefer smaller watches. And this movement is not going to let us do that. But the techniques and the, the design, the designing that we put into this now is going to eventually lead to being able to make a smaller movement that's a little bit more feasible in terms of making a modern wristwatch out of it. Mm. And it is a solid, reliable base to to be working off of. There's a, a reason they use this movement yeah. in watchmaking schools, and there's a reason that I would say dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of people who sort of carved out their own first watch have started with this particular movement. Yeah, yeah. And again, just because this is where we start with it doesn't mean that that's where you know eventually we end with it. It's uh, we've we've got a couple of ideas for maybe a version two and three, and you know, maybe even a four eventually that. That you know we can we can change more and more of it as we go and add sort of our own twist and and uh, we can add our own opinions into watches because we we talk a lot about other people's watches and we we have opinions about a lot of other people's watches so we figured yeah, why not let's let's actually put our opinions to the test and see how they work. Well, I have exercised my opinion on on free spring balances and just about every watch I own. I know you so. I know you have, but you know this is a chance to to try that a little bit so. Yeah, I guess that's a, that's a good question. Like, what are, you know, what are some of the choices that we decided to make with this version one watch? You know, we've talked about the fact that we're leaving the main plate there and we're replacing a couple of bridges and we're replacing the cock. Uh, what are what are some of the other decisions that we'd made in terms of what we wanted to accomplish with this? Um, not a whole lot else for the, for this particular version one. Uh, we'll be redoing the click for sure, mm-hmm. and then uh, yeah, we're gonna take a shot at making this a, a free sprung movement yeah. as well. Yeah, that that I think is one of the important ones as well, being able to re remachine a, or machine a new balance and uh, figure out the uh, the pesky spring and uh, pinning points and stuff like that on the on the hairspring. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be an interesting challenge. The rest of it, the the actual changing of the bridges and the and the cock, that's that's an interesting problem, and I'm looking forward to trying it. But it's not particularly revolutionary. It's you know it's still relatively simple metal work that's involved in that. And most of that metalwork is not particularly precision guided, you know, as long as you get the holes in the right spot. Uh, the rest of it, the shape of it isn't particularly, you know, challenging. It's It can be any shape you want to be, really. So that part isn't particularly difficult from a machining point of view, but the, the free-sprung balance is the bit that I'm interested in. That'll be fun. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. So stay tuned. We'll, uh, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it and We'll, uh, we'll eventually be posting some photos and videos of, of some of the stuff that we're doing. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore hand.